Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check us out online at blisterreview.com. Today, we're talking with New York Times sports writer Karen Krauss about her new book, Norwich. Norwich is a tiny town in Vermont that has produced 11 Olympians, and Karen's extremely well-written book looks into how it is that this little town has managed to produce so many successful athletes. But Karen is also exploring far bigger, universal questions about the relationship of athletic achievement and personal well-being, and really, I think her book Norwich is best understood as a blueprint or guidebook on how to raise and train athletes to be more than mere medal-winning machines. Norwich is a book about community, about parenting, and how to go about helping kids become fully developed people who are well-positioned to lead happy, healthy lives. Karen and I also discuss the current state of the Olympic Games, since Karen has been to and has covered a bunch of them, and will be back at the Olympics again next month. And she and I talk about how her time spent with all-time achievers like Michael Phelps and Tiger Woods has informed her thoughts on the price of greatness. Before we begin, I wanted to remind you to check out our new weekly climbing podcast, All Things Climbing, hosted by our senior climbing editor, Dave Alley. Just as with the Blister Podcast and our Gear 30 Podcast, you can subscribe to All Things Climbing in iTunes or your favorite podcast player and have new episodes automatically downloaded to your phone or your computer. And now, let's get to my conversation with New York Times writer Karen Krause. Well, Karen, this book of yours is not some massive book, but Norwich still feels to me like it's really a book that kind of contains three or four or five different books. So it's really something else. And I would love to hear how you answer the seemingly simple question, what is this book about? Well, it's actually, thank you, first of all, for having me on to talk about this. I'm hoping we can solve all the problems of youth sports in the next hour by talking about Norwich. (laughs) Um, I set out to write an Olympic book and ended up with a parenting guide. So my biggest takeaway is that this is a sports book masquerading as a parenting guide or a parenting guide masquerading as a sports book because what I found in researching the athletes that this town has produced is that there were some common core values that drove all of them and their values that are well worth replicating, especially in this crazy time when parents are going to the ends of the earth to try to guarantee the success of their children in these extracurricular activities. And I think in most cases, it's a fool's errand, and they'd be better off just letting them organically develop. And that is really the number one takeaway of this book. When you started, uh, as you said, thinking this would be a, a, a book about the Olympics, um, you have a pretty uh, prominent history and have been to and covered a lot of the Olympics, correct? Yes, this all I'm um, going to be at the games in Pyeongchang, and those will be my 11th that I have covered as a journalist. Hmm. So. So I was a competitive swimmer growing up, always aspired to swim in an Olympics, never made it, but have 
chronicled, uh, this will be, like I said, 11 of them. So I feel like I've experienced the next best thing. Plus, I haven't had the pressure of actually having to perform as an athlete. I've just been able to write what I see, which is even better in some respects. As somebody who has kept your eye on these games and witnessed them firsthand, I'm just curious to get your kind of state of the union on the Olympic Games as you see them? Well, I tend to be an optimist. Um, and the Olympics are why I'm a sports writer. They've had a huge impact on my life from how I got into journalism, from my early days of winning, of watching them and being inspired by the swimmers I saw compete in them. But the last few Olympics have really tested my love of the event because it just seems in so many fundamental ways the games are broken. The the money has become everything, and it just seems as if the money grab has corrupted everything that I loved about the games, the purity of purpose, um, you have corporations that are putting a lot of money into these games, expecting to get a lot of exposure from the games. There are athletes who look at this as their lottery ticket to a better life, to a, um, a life full, uh, a financial future that is guaranteed, um, which is not the case for very many at all. So I just think money has corrupted the essential purpose of the games, which is to bring people from the world together, everyone testing themselves against the best and against, you know, their own personal um, standards and ceilings. So, um, Sochi was probably the toughest games for me because I felt in so many ways that all of us there were just performers on Vladimir Putin's stage. It was all stagecraft. And you had the unmistakable feeling that as soon as the last visitor left, that all of these facilities would quickly become white elephants. So I was really disheartened, I have to say, in 2014. But um, the world operates in strange and mysterious ways. And it was during those Olympics that I received a reader email telling me about Hannah Carney, this athlete from this little town in Vermont that has put at least one Olympian on every U.S. winter team since 1984, which wasn't quite correct. They did not have an athlete represented at the 2002 Games in Salt Lake City, but it was just so intriguing to me, and that led me to Vermont, which the story of these Olympians renewed my faith in the Olympic movement. I feel as if at least in one corner of the country, there is there are athletes who are going about their pursuit and passions in the purest way possible in these days. Hmm. Yeah, and that so that then ties us in um, to this book of yours, Norwich, which is a really interesting and I think multi-layered kind of investigation. One, it is in part um, t- 
town history. Two, it is kind of um, in part a blueprint or guidebook, right, about some principles that maybe we can take. And so, um, so let's do it this way. I mean, how important is it, you as the author, how important was it for you to, in this book, get the town right as if this was a sort of strict history of the way this town works versus the idea that this town, as you've already said, has cultivated a number of Olympians. And in this work, you've then drawn some principles that you think would be instructive to, well, basically the rest of us everywhere and anywhere. Right. So there isn't enough space for all of us to move to Norwich, however tempting that might be after reading the book. But I absolutely believe that the principles of Norwich are you can be replicated in any community where you have adults, parents and coaches, rec leaders who are committed to certain values. It requires a bit of a value shift away from the absolute absolute bottom line um, from the idea that sports is a zero-sum game where only one person wins and everybody else loses to a sort of communitarian pursuit where um, community matters, um, the all-for-one, one-for-all spirit matters, a generosity of spirit is present you are you value connecting with nature instead of with technology you're driven by the by self improvement and not just success as it's measured in the most empirical terms um it i i think it would have been so easy for me to describe this town that is mostly white most upper middle class and say, well, that's why they're successful. But I knew that that wasn't really, couldn't really be the case because I grew up in a town that in the 1970s, believe it or not, had a lot of the same characteristics of Norwich. And I'm talking about Santa Clara, California, which many people know now, if you follow sports, the 49ers have a dateline of Santa Clara during every home game they play. It's considered the cradle of the Silicon Valley. And yet in the 1970s, when I was growing up there, I had to explain where Santa Clara was when I got too far afield from the area. And by too far afield, I mean Sacramento. So in LA, when I went to college, nobody knew where Santa Clara was. It was still a largely agrarian town, there were orchards across the street from the subdivision where I grew up. And I knew that from having gone back there multiple times, I'm there every year for one assignment or another, that as the area got richer, all of these quality, qualities and characteristics that are alive and well in Norwich slowly disappeared in the Silicon Valley and in Santa Clara in particular, one by one by one, as people, um, as their wealth grew, as technology became king, people became more isolated. There wasn't this communitarian spirit. 
people weren't really necessarily looking out for those who weren't as well off as they are or who don't have the same resources. So I could, um, to the argument, and I know there will be people who will present this argument that, well, why should I care about a town that's mostly white and mostly upper middle class? My answer would be because these are the very, this is the very demographic that has the highest risk for becoming isolated, for becoming driven um, toward empirical ends, you know, for having the high expectations for success, for driving their children almost, you know, to exhaustion, physical and mental. So the fact that this town with its demographics has managed to not only avoid that trap, but to thrive with these bygone era values amazed me and heartened me to no end because these are the values that I was with which I was raised and that I still hold dear. Yeah. Yeah. I, you, you and I discussed there, there was a, an early review of this book out that just a hundred percent misses the point. Like I, it maybe is one of those cases where I'm not sure this person read the book because right. literally on every page, the thing that comes clear is if you wanted to replicate uh, the the values in this town, and and it's not just this isn't um, this isn't some vague ascription of these values to the town. You are documenting specific individuals in the town <laughs> with with right. every one of these lessons, like literally on every page. And, and um, let's yes, and let's not forget. Um, Pardon me for interrupting, no. but the most successful Olympian that this town has produced, Hannah Carney, who won a gold medal in the women's moguls at the 2010 Winter Games, and then in defense of her title, won a bronze in 2014. She comes from maybe the most modest means of any of the Olympians. Her father is a carpenter. Her mother runs the recreation department. And if not for the generosity of the town, her career would have effectively been over before it ever got started. Because once she had outgrown local competition and was ready to compete on the regional and national level, this is when she was 12, 13, her parents sat her down and said, Hannah, we can't afford to send you to all of these tournaments that involve plane rides and overnight stays. So it's going to be up to you to find a way to make this work. And this is what I love more than anything else about Norwich is that the parents do not do everything for their children. Um, I know parents who would have been taking second mortgages on their home to pay for Hannah's travel and for her lodging when they reached this point. I know parents that, um, you know, would have been working a second and third job to the detriment of their family um, structure um, and the health of their family. I know parents who would have gone out and solicited 
sponsors for their child. The Carneys did none of these things. Instead, instead, they empowered Hannah to come up with a solution. They gave her the responsibility to figure it out on her own. And this really is the key to developing competence, um, confidence, and really an autonomy. And isn't that what we want for every child? If a parent does his or her job right, you hope that you become almost um, unnecessary. And that is what these parents are doing. So what Hannah did in this case was she wrote out a resume that had what she's done in the sport and what she's done in the classroom. And she got on her bike and pedaled to all the local businesses. And that did result in a few sponsor dollars. But one of the uh, townspeople heard about Hannah's plight, mentioned it to his father, who was a self-made millionaire. And this man decided he would sponsor Hannah. And so this man's largesse served as the bridge for Hannah from her regional competition. And she became a member of the national team, at which time many of her expenses were picked up by um, U.S. scheme. And this man, all he asked for in return was that she produce her report card for him every term, that he would get a copy of her report card, and that she would itemize her expenses so that she would show him how she spent every dollar of the money that he gave her. Hmm. And I don't know if your listeners can appreciate just how genius this was, because what this man was teaching Hannah by offering these as the terms of their agreement was the unmistaken um, message that education is the most important thing. After all, he wasn't asking for her the results of her competitions. He was yeah. asking for her grades and he was teaching her the value of a dollar and making her responsible when she's barely a teenager for keeping track of how she spent every dollar. And how great is that for developing a financial acumen to have that responsibility placed on you um, at that young of an age? And Hannah told me, she said, I didn't really appreciate it till later that he was really teaching, he was passing on a value system to me, but also teaching me financial responsibility, which we probably all could use a refresher course in that. Again, the, the man was just, you know, this is not, he wasn't an outlier. I mean, this is how the people in this town, um, again, said she never owned a new pair of skis until she got to the national team, that she never owned a new jacket. All of her equipment, all of her clothing, she would get as hand-me-downs or second-hand equipment. Um, Everybody was willing to just provide these things for people who um, maybe couldn't have the best and the most things on their own. Um, 
I witnessed this. I was actually in the recreation department um, office of Hannah's mom, Jill, one afternoon when a random call came in and the person on the other end of the line wanted to know, um, did was there someone who needed uh, sponsoring, who needed their recreational dues paid because this person was volunteering to do so? This is how... This is the fabric of the town. This is how this town operates. And when these kids see this on a very elemental level at a very young age, they grow up thinking, well, this is how it is. So they, in turn, become just as generous with their time and resources as they get older. So it becomes just a, that's how the value system is preserved. Um, to give you an example of that, Hannah, after she won her gold medal in 2010, the owner of Dan and Wits, the general store, whose motto, by the way, I love, if we don't have it, you don't need it, yeah. which could actually be the motto of the town hmm. or the mantra of the town. He made up some bumper stickers because the town was so proud of her and um, he sold them for a dollar a piece. and reaped a couple hundred dollars in profit. So when Hannah returned from the Olympics, he gives her this check and said, here, here, here's some money from these bumper stickers that we um, sold. And she thought, you know what I'm going to do with this money? I know exactly what I'm going to do with this money. She went to the library and asked the children's librarian if she would take the money and buy some sports books that would be of interest to teenage girls. Hmm. So there you go. Just the generosity of spirit um, showing through the generations. Um, Hannah receives this largesse and then she passes it off. Yeah. What I think is so important um, about that is just this notion of, you know, share. Right. Um, right. Find find those in the community that that you can give to and kind of keep keep passing it down. Um, right. There's and, always someone who is worse off than you, hmm. no matter how um, how much how much you lack. There's always someone that you can help, and yeah. I think that was my, another big takeaway I took from this town, and I really tried to be cognizant of that in my day to day life as I. Um, just go about my business that look around, don't be so isolated and in your own bubble that you can't just take the time to look outside of your bubble to who can I help today um, with either a kind word or a kind deed. Um, that's a huge part of the, the Norwich way, as I call it. Yeah. Another, another thing that, um, I want to talk to you about, cause I think it's just so crucial was this culture of volunteering, you know? Right. And, and again, coming back to your point about, look, it is, it is maybe the most afflu affluent, the most achievement oriented folks that need to uh, hear this lesson and witness this in action in a community. But one of my absolute favorite parts of the book was learning about Ford Sayre. 
Uh, yes. And so I, I, on that note of volunteering, I'd love to hear you say a bit about who this man was and why he figures so prominently in your book and in the history of this town. Sure. So Ford Sayer was a Dartmouth grad, and he was working at the Hanover Inn, and he found that in the winter, business dropped off, um, understandably, I suppose, when you have uh, temperatures in the minus degrees. And so he started a ski school thinking that people would, families would come and stay at the inn and bring their children and he would work with the children in the morning and it was win-win. They would be introducing the sport to the next generation. The inn would be full. And what was wonderful about this, that this was in the late 30s, 40s, at a time when girls did not have a lot of sports available to them. Um, there were a lot of places where these opportunities would have been available only to the young boys. But he opened this school to both girls and boys. And so it was really, um, he was ahead of the curve by many years in offering girls equal opportunity to learn to ski. And so what he would do because there really weren't enough instructors skiing at this time was just taking off in the United States. He would train parents and then, or have people, um, ski instructors or coaches from Dartmouth help train the parents. And then the parents would be the ones who would teach the children. And mind you, not their children, but a group of children so the parents teach the children to ski. The children, hopefully, in a perfect world, develop a love of the sport. And it becomes this activity that the family can, in turn, enjoy for decades to come. That was Ford Sayer's entire objective. He did not start the ski school so that he could develop the most outstanding skiers in the world. He did not set out to create future Olympians. He just wanted to imbue in these children a love of the sport that he had come to rather late, regrettably in his mind. He wanted to imbue in them a love early of the sport that they would then enjoy for the rest of their lives, hopefully with their families. Yeah, it's 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 one of the best parts. And I think this is actually one of those times where it's like, you know, people just go get this book and, and go read about this man and 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 what he built. Um, and and the way he was remembered for it, right? I mean, yeah, it continues to this day. In fact, Michaela Schifrin, who will be getting a lion's share of attention at the Pyeongchang Olympics, she started um, skiing at at Ford Sayer and at the Dartmouth Skiway while her parents were still living there before um, then going to a boarding school in Vermont, moving to Colorado. So mm-hmm. when you watch her, remember, she got her start at uh, Ford Sayer School, at the skiing school. But um, it he um, was killed in an airplane accident um, in the 1940s. He was in the military. And so instead of um, flowers and such, uh, people decided 
we are going to raise money to keep the school alive. And this will be a lasting memorial to this man that was so beloved. It is just a great story. But again, in this area, this is how this is perfectly uh, normal. They don't see anything unusual in this behavior or this mindset. So another thing I want to talk about is um, a bit about the connection between Dartmouth College and the town of Norwich, but then perhaps most importantly, the extent to which we think that that connection between this college and the town is reproducible elsewhere. Yeah. Well, obviously, Dartmouth College has resources, whether it's facilities, expert coaching, um, young uh, athletes that are competing for the college that that children can look up to and aspire to be like one day. So that's super valuable. But beyond that, you have coaches who make sure that their athletes spend one day a week working with youngsters in the area, volunteering their time to teach them the sports that they know so well. Um, So there is this volunteerism that is the thread that runs through everything in this area. And I think if I can um, put this in a broader context is that at a time where people are so focused on things, on materialism, on um, greed, if you will, this town has sort of figured out that happiness doesn't really come from all of those things. It comes from without. It comes from being part of something bigger than yourself. It comes from being part of a community, from connecting with your neighbors, from um, just not living in a bubble, if you will. Now, part of this is by... um, they, you ha- this is self-preservation, right? This is a pretty isolated area. Anyone who has been to Dartmouth College knows it's a little different than Columbia in terms of just what you have around you. So I think for that reason, reasons dealing with geography, people do feel like they have to stick together. But for whatever reason, that value system is strong and sustainable and it just manifests itself in myriad ways have you looked into much the to the the extent to which that volunteerism that perhaps we're seeing out of a dartmouth i have to imagine that there are certainly some colleges and universities you know in different places that there's going to be more or less of this Right, or, right. Do you have do you, do you know much about this? I've heard of outreach programs at different universities, not even having to do with athletics yeah. so much. Um, a lot of times, you'll have people, for example, who are getting their teaching degrees. They'll work with local schools in urban areas and whatnot. But I can give you one example. I spent two months in a small town in Oregon at the end of last year and read about a high school track team where the coach 
coach as a team bonding exercise had this his runners make a boat in their wood shop at the high school and then they raffled this boat off at the end of the school term it was a fishing village so someone really could use this boat to for his or her livelihood so that was helpful and practical from that respect and yet it also taught the runners uh, it was a team bonding exercise but also taught them that hey we are part of something bigger here we are part of a town in which uh, fishing is how people make their livelihoods. And we are providing a service, if you will, that will help make that easier. And I just love that because I think anytime, and none of us are too young or too old to remember or be made aware of that we do not exist in a vacuum. And um, as much as we all think the world revolves around our own um, lives and actions and goals and dreams, there is just so much more out there that we should be a part of and never forget that. So I, I know that happens a lot um, at the high school level, at the college level. I would argue it's not too soon to start kids at the grade school level. If you're in sixth grade, you have a skill set that can certainly help a first grader or a kindergartner learn something. And I think it's super valuable when you are skilled at something to help someone who maybe is much less so. It is a wonderful way of teaching empathy for helping someone to see that not everyone picks these skills up as easily as you might have that, um, that there are people who you can help and that there are people who struggle. So um, all of this is a piece of the Norwich way. Hmm. Reading this book, um, it really has gotten me at least thinking about cultivating happiness versus cultivating greatness. Right. And you and your work, I mean, you, you have covered, um, you have covered Michael Phelps, um, the standard, right? When we think of swimming, you have covered, um, Tiger Woods, uh, again, sort of these, these single standard, I think we can say, um, in golf. So, and I don't know. I mean, reading through this book, I found myself thinking a little bit about, you know, you you talk repeatedly about in Norwich, there's a culture of praising the effort, not the result. And yet we kind of also hear a lot as a kind of cultural criticism, this like, ah, everybody gets a part- participation trophy, that kind of thing. And I'd, I'd love to hear you, again, because of the journalist work you've done in terms of covering a Phelps, covering a Tiger Woods, having researched this book, where you come down on all this. Um, can, right. You know? Well, I know what you're saying about the the culture of, you know, everybody gets a ribbon, and that is definitely not Norwich. Now, they do have no-cut leagues, but that is to allow everyone to participate. Um, I think the difference is that there is a there 
the parents of Norwich, they expose their children to as many things as they can. And they want their children, they, they see their role as helping their children to find their passion. And once that happens, they are going to support that passion wholeheartedly. But I think where the difference between the participatory ribbons and everybody's a winner is they realize that not everybody is a winner, but they're what, how they judge success is, are you doing your best? Are you, it's all about self-improvement and it is also about finding a passion. It's not about being a dilettante and trying a bunch of different things half-heartedly. They are trying to help their child or children identify what really lights a fire under them, what drives them, what what are they going to be passionate about. And then they let the child or the children drive this passion. They are running, they are simply riding shotgun as their children um, really pursue this, uh, whatever they find that fascinates or uh, they whatever fascinates them, whatever they love. Um, the perfect example of that is Andrew Weeding. He played soccer. He played basketball. He thought he was a soccer player. He loved soccer. He thought David Beckham was just, you know, the bee's knees. And then when he was a junior in high school, his soccer coach said, Andrew, I think you're great. You're a great teammate, but, I've noticed that what you do really well is every time I make you guys run, you finish well ahead of everybody else. I think that this fall, maybe instead of playing soccer, you should try cross country um, because I think you, you know, you might really enjoy that. And so Andrew did, and he did well. So then his senior year, he, also ran cross country and decided to run track. And when I asked his mother about this, his father had been a national level field hockey player for England. He had been part of the pipeline that had Great Britain fielded an Olympic team during this time. He would have been part of that mix. But his father never really uh, never pushed field hockey on Andrew or his other two children. His mother, Andrew's grandmother, was a, fant- a world-class badminton player. They never pushed badminton on their children. So when I asked the readings about this, like, do you wish that you would have maybe steered Andrew to running before his junior year in high school? They said, oh, no, no, because every child develops at a different rate. And as a parent, all you can do is open these doors for them and then wait and see what really mesmerizes them, what they are enamored of. And then you just try to support whatever passion that they have. And she said, hey, it might be 
college before some people find their passion. It might be after college, but the key is having the patience and realizing that no two children are alike. So if your next door neighbor has a first grader who already knows exactly what he or she wants to be when they grow up, that doesn't mean your child has to um, be similarly wired. And this has, of course, the craziest, most Cinderella ending. So Andrew runs track all of one season, his senior year. Through connections, he winds up at the University of Oregon. And after his sophomore year, so this is after really three years of competitive track, he makes his first Olympic team. And this just blew the mind of the Olympic ski jumpers in Norwich. One of them, Jeff Hastings, told me, you know, ski jumping were a very small subset in the United States, but everybody runs. So for Andrew to do what he did is Hmm. just miraculous. (laughs) Again, thinking about this notion of a, you know, creating, you know, well-adjusted kids, which seems like a real good thing for us as a culture to try to be doing. Um, But to be creating well-adjusted kids that are still, um, achieving, you know, as much as they can, right? As much as their potential would allow them or as much as they care to go try to achieve. I think you just spoke really well about um, helping to foster and help kids find the thing that they're passionate about and and cultivating or or fostering that self-drive. Again, given that you have covered and, and, you know, seen athletes like a Missy Franklin, like a Michael Phelps, like a Tiger Woods. I guess in those cases, I'm a little bit curious to hear you say or weigh in a little bit. Right. I'm sorry. I did kind of drop the ball on your last question. I guess I didn't complete it because I got off on a riff. But Oh, it was a good riff. Great, greatness and, and happiness yeah. do not go hand in hand. You do not become great. Happiness is not a result of becoming great necessarily. And I was so blessed, Jonathan, to find this out at a very young age. Growing up in Santa Clara in the 70s when it was the epicenter of swimming, not only in the United States but in the world, I saw plenty of athletes who were very accomplished. And they were miserable because here was the thing. They thought that if I only make if I only set that record, if I only set that American record, if I break that world record, if I win that gold medal, then I'm going to be happy. Then all of my insecurities and issues will be, will just, will just disappear. And of course that didn't happen. In some cases it became worse because the very act of reaching these goals isolated them further. It required an intensity and a focus that further separated them from their peers, from anything that resembled normalcy, from their social fabric, from connecting with other people, all these things that we talked about that Norwich holds dear. And so you have a case like a Michael Phelps who 
is the winningest all-time Olympian with 28 medals. And yet I wrote a story last September in which she talked about his um, struggles with anxiety and depression and at one time suicidal thoughts there's this idea it's perpetuated by the professionalized youth sports movement professionalized by people who only value first place who think that second place is the first loser that if you can just win if you can be a winner everything else in your life will be roses and rainbows and that winning takes care of everything. Well, no, winning doesn't. You, if you win a gold medal, you are the same person the next day. You still have the same issues and insecurities, but now you maybe even have a harder time of it because you have this public stature that is going to make it harder for you to figure out who you are. And what I've noticed with Michael and again with Tiger is they paid a price for trying to be the best ever at what they did. And that price was everything in their development was geared toward the performer. Very little attention was paid to the person to the person who has vulnerabilities, insecurities, who craves social interaction. Um, I remember covering Michael Phelps in the 2008 Olympics when he won eight gold medals. And he was so monomaniacally focused. He had his own room. He did not mix it all with the other U.S. Olympic swim team members had very little interaction with anyone but his coach, really. And at the end of the Olympics, I remember mentioning something to him about, wasn't the ice cube neat how it changed colors outside at night? And he looked at me and he said, really? I never noticed that. That's the kind of focus we're talking about. And he needed that to achieve what he did. But the price he paid, you really have to ask yourself, was it worth it? He says it was, but, but he's definitely had a tough time of it the last 10 years, really coming to grips with the more successful he became the less he felt as if he could um, develop the person because the only thing anyone cared about was the performer. And that's a really tough spot to be in because at some point the performer retires and you're left with the person for the rest of your life. And that's what I think Norwich does so well is it never lets that athlete forget that he or she is a person first, a person that is unconditionally loved and supported. And then as a performer and the Hannah Carney chapter for anyone who reads the book is the embodiment of that quality. The town basically served as a collective therapist for Hannah. She has some of the same, um, she has the same intensity that a tiger has that a Michael Phelps has. 
But every time that she was ready to just harshly judge herself and she was chastising herself or castigating herself for her performances or feeling as if she was a loser because she wasn't performing as well as she knew she was capable of, the town would step in and go, Hannah, we are so proud of you because we see that you are passionate about what you do. You represent us beautifully on the world stage. You work so hard. You set such a great example for everyone else in this town. You inspire us daily. And it was because of that kind of support that she was able to take a step back from the inner judge that was so much of a perfectionist. And she was able to recover from the failures in far less time than she might otherwise have needed. She didn't stew in her um, failures as much as she would have if left to her own devices. But if I can just give you an example of how that is not often so elsewhere. I was telling this story about of Hannah to another athlete, a multiple gold medalist in swimming. And this person said to me, wow, that is really a special place. And then proceeded to tell me this story that this swimmer was um, out and about during the holidays after a very difficult summer and ran into a father of an athlete that had been a competitor and um, said hello. And the father said, you know, we're really praying for you. We really hope that you can get your... um, swimming together in time for the Rio Olympics. Hmm. And this athlete told me that after this gentleman left, that the conversation with, um, I'm trying not to give identifying characteristics here, that basically the athlete said to um, the parent, wow, um, was that a compliment? Because that felt a little bit like a, a a backhanded compliment at best Mm -hmm. and actually made this athlete feel worse when I'm sure the person intended to be helpful, but it's tough when your value system is that second place is the first loser as opposed to, Hey, okay. You didn't perform as well as, earlier times on the world stage, but you're still on the world stage and you're doing your best and you've had some mitigating circumstances and Hey, we all fail. And it's really, you learn more in the failures than the successes anyway. So what a great learning experience this year has been for you. Mm -hmm. If it could have been framed that way, it would have made all the difference. This Olympian would have walked away feeling like a million bucks. Mm -hmm. We're real good at deciding who uh, ends up being the number one football team or the number right. one mogul skier. We are we are absolutely failing at trying to measure like 
things like a strong and rich interior life or uh, right. in, uh, academic, or I'm sorry, uh, athletic achievement coupled with like emotional intelligence or and how, education. And yes. edu- I mean, yeah. We, and we, that's, a, yeah. And that can be so easily kept in perspective. If you, as you go through the um, development of your child, um, your child's development, his or her interests is always remember person first, performer second, hmm. person first, performer second. But unfortunately, we live in a society that extols the performer and doesn't really pay much attention to the person piece of it. We have um, a U.S. Olympic Committee that bases its um, whole fundraising campaign on the medal count. Hmm. Well, I would suggest a better way of um, flipping it is let's talk about what these Olympians do post-career, how they use the tools in their toolbox, the skill set they've developed in their sports, the self-discipline, the self-motivation, the delayed gratification, the ability to work well with others, the perseverance, the persistence, the learning to that failure is just another step on the way to success. And tell the tell the public what these people have are doing in their post sports lives. So instead of saying, well, we've beaten Russia in the medal count and we want to do it again the next Olympics, can say, you know what? We are this Olympic movement is developing hmm. future um, surgeons and uh, uh, teachers and coaches and um, architects and maybe even presidents of the United States. So um, I really think it's important that at the very top, we shift the conversation from these very extrinsic results, gold medals, gold medal count, to what is really important is how are these people able to use their sports careers to launch themselves into successful post-sports lives, how are they better off in their 30s, 40s, and 50s for having devoted their childhoods to these sporting endeavors? I got to say, I just, I thought this was going to be a cute little book about like the Olympics in a small little town. And it, it really, for me at least, got me thinking much bigger and and culturally globally about this the modern kind of juxtaposition of happiness and greatness and how we do a better job in our communities of just raising well adjusted you know well functioning kids who are right. still doing all of these athletic things that most of us love a lot and and care about a lot um well, so I just yeah I just love that in this time of divisiveness and discord, along comes the story of community and connectedness and a generosity of spirit. And I really hope that will resonate with people because I just see it all too often in my day-to-day working life of parents who are so well-meaning 
but they are putting so much pressure on their children to perform and the expectations are theirs, not the child's expectations. It's not the child's passion. The child is caught up in this vortex of not really understanding or knowing whether they're doing the sport for their own purposes or to please their parents. And that's a really dangerous um, road to go down. It claims a a lot of victims, you know, uh, in late adolescence, early adulthood. It is important stuff. Um, Karen, if, if our audience wants to find you, uh, yes. or this book, do you have preferred mediums for them to, to, to find you or follow you? Well, I'm so old fashioned that I would love for them to, uh, go to their nearest independent bookstore and order the book. But of course you always can go to Amazon or any of the, um, big box outlets and order the book or um, you can reach out to me. I'm on Twitter at by Karen, B Y K A R E N, or you can just send me a reader email through the New York times. Well, great. Um, well, Karen, thanks so much. I, this has been a great conversation. I've enjoyed, um, uh, (laughs) the conversation we had another day that, that went, I think longer than this one. Um, but, but this has been rich and, um, uh, I'm grateful for, uh, getting the chance to speak with you and for this book. Thank you for championing it. It Mm. means a lot. Um, well, uh, it's an easy one to champion. So, uh, again, thank you for that. But, um, yeah, I, I hope the the book tour. I know you're 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 going to be uh, doing some touring for this book, so I, I hope that all goes well. And once that wraps up, then what? Well, then I go to the Olympics and go back to covering Tiger Woods. Hopefully, uh, he will give me a lot of rich material to work <laughs> with. Um, we haven't seen him play a full season in quite some time. So I'm looking forward to maybe seeing how he can compete with these millennials who have come of age in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. Another interesting story. So, well, Karen, again, thanks so much. And uh, yeah, look forward to doing it again down the road sometime. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Many thanks to Karen Krauss for the conversation and for writing this really excellent book. You can follow Karen on Twitter at ByKaren, that's B-Y Karen. And in the show notes to this episode, we will include links to her work at the New York Times, as well as a link to her book Norwich that you are going to want to pick up and read. Thanks also, as always, to our strikingly handsome audio engineer, Justin Bob. And I am now going to start trying to get my act together to head up to Denver for Outdoor Retailers slash SIA. So stay tuned for our coverage from Denver, and we will talk to you very soon.